celebrate service or the seven last words of Jesus on the cross. Uh, for any guests in the room, uh, if you've never been here before, uh, the word tenebrae just simply means darkness. And it refers uh, specifically to a service of worship where there is a progressive extinguishing of candles that slowly represent the death of Christ on the cross. The tenebrae service is, is really it's one of a prolonged meditation on the suffering of Christ. And it has been observed in the church since the 4th century. So in this service of prayer and contemplation, we simply remember the death of our Lord as we recall his seven last words or sayings on the cross. And so there'll be a word and then a short homily after each, as well as a few songs. But we also have a moment of response in your bulletins. So if you will take those up, we will begin if you will respond in the bold. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. The peace of the Lord be with you. As this service progresses, we'll be singing Psalm 22. Right now it's the, uh, the first third of the psalm, and later we'll sing the last third. Oh, 
stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let us remember Jesus, who, though rich, became poor and dwelt among us, who was mighty indeed, healing the sick and the troubled, who, as a teacher to his disciples, was their companion and servant. May we ever be grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Let us remember Jesus. Who prayed for the forgiveness of those who rejected him, and for the perfecting of those who received him, who loved all people and prayed for them, even if they denied and rejected him, who hated sin because he knew the cost of pride and selfishness, of cruelty and hatred, both to people and to God. May we ever be grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Let us remember Jesus, who humbled himself, obedient unto the cross. God has exalted him, who has redeemed us from the bondage of sin and given us new freedom. May we ever be grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and continues to do for us. The first word, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Luke twenty three thirty four. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This might sound strange, but I'd like to pose a question to all of you. How do you handle your bad days? If you're late to work, if you're late turning in something to a class, if you're hungry, lonely, or just even behind a terrible driver in your car, how do you respond? Do you show kindness, gentleness, or mercy? 
or are you more like me? When responding to a bad day, I tend to be more like my middle namesake. Many of you might not know this, but my middle name is Adam. I tend to fall in sin, just like he did, in the circumstances of life. I'd like to briefly uh, take Adam as an example. He was in a beautiful garden. He was not alone. Better than just not alone, he had his helpmate, his wife. He had food all around him, and he would talk directly with God. What happened to him? But he failed. This is a day that most people would consider was a very good day for Adam. Now let's look at Jesus. I think most people would agree on this day of Jesus' death that it was an extremely bad day, if not his worst. Jesus had not eaten in quite some time. Jesus had not had any sleep for over 24 hours. Jesus was beaten, flogged, stripped of his garments. One of his disciples betrayed him. One of his disciples denied that he even knew him. The rest of his friends were watching him taste death all the time. His mother watching him die as many of the people around him poke fun at him. On this extremely bad day, how does Jesus respond? Not like any of us, but with composure, knowing his purpose, his place and relationship to God, he showed mercy in these few words. Jesus said, Father. Jesus states these words this, he starts this prayer with the word Father. This is normal for Jesus, but he is doing what he told us to do in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. That section of scripture of Matthew is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven. At this point, Jesus is fully aware of who he is and who God the Father is. And he uses this term of affection to refer to his father. Forgive them. I've learned some things in my life and one of those is I truly believe that lost people um, cannot truly understand forgiveness. They try to, they can understand parts of it, but when it comes to true forgiveness, unless you've been forgiven by Jesus, I really don't think that you can truly understand forgiveness. So we have these words, forgive. Jesus is the one that has the authority to forgive sins. He's already forgiven sins before in his ministry. But in the case of the paralyzed man, he went on to prove this by healing the man. This is Jesus forgiving us, and he was the God-man, and we were all sinning against him. The word them. We could go down a large rabbit hole with this one. Some people would think that this is Jesus asking us 
well, Jesus forgiving the Jews that were there. Others might think uh, it was the Roman guards. Even some others would say God's elect, and some would even say the whole world. Ultimately, Jesus knows who he meant when he made the statement. And we do not have to understand that right now. We need to look at his example and take joy in how God's ways are not our ways. His ways were while dying, he forgave. For they do not know what they are doing. When we come to this explanation, I started to think about it. And I came up with this question. Is Jesus using a defense of ignorance for the reasoning for pardoning sins? I really do not think this is the case because there's many references in Scripture that just because you don't know the law does not lift the responsibility of the law. After thinking about some more, I came to this conclusion. Why are these words even in here? God the Father already knows that every man since Adam and Eve ultimately really has no clue of what they are doing. This would include everyone today. We don't know what we're doing. So why are these words even in here? Ultimately, I think these are for everyone who hears. Everyone who has ears, hear. Jesus is forgiving those people that were there. And Jesus is forgiving those that hear and have ears that can hear. So back to a bad day. Jesus in his worst day shows us what it means to be holy. What I mean by that is God's ways are not our ways. We on our bad days might fall into sin, our sin nature, and be mean and cruel and selfish when things are bad. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be holy as he is holy. We will never be as holy as our Savior on this side of glory. But we need to let his spirit do the supernatural work of showing kindness and forgiving in the worst of circumstances. Our Father in heaven, to whom your crucified son prayed for forgiveness of those who did not know what they were doing, grant that we too may include in that prayer, whether we sin out of ignorance or intention, be merciful to us and grant us your acceptance and peace in the name of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior. Amen. Amen.
the second word. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. John Bunyan wrote a book about his journey to Christ. It was entitled, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Perhaps we could all apply that title to ourselves, but let's apply Bunyan's title to the thief who was dying on Calvary, the thief who was saved. The early church gave these two criminals the names of Dismas and Gestas. They were thieves. Dismas believed, Gestas did not. Some commentators suggest that these two were insurrectionists along with Barabbas, which illustrates the madness from time to time of human justice. Barabbas was set free while these two followers were crucified. Barabbas means son of the father. So the false son of the father is set free and the true son of the father is crucified. But the father is superintending these events in a marvelous way. The apostle Paul states that this thing was not done in a corner. Everyone in Jerusalem knew about this event. They had heard about Jesus. Dismas and Gestas knew about him also. What perhaps no one or very few realized was that the words of the prophet Isaiah were being fulfilled before their very eyes. The prophet says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. The father appoints Dismas and Gestas to fulfill the role of the wicked as they die with the Lamb of God. The deaths are very different, however. The death of the Son of God atones for the sins of his people. The deaths of the two insurrectionists doesn't do anything except take them out of the world. The results of Christ's work on the cross on our behalf were quickly manifested in the salvation of Dismas and the Roman centurion. Jesus had said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. As a preacher once said, Jesus didn't waste no time. The saving value of his death was manifested immediately. Dismas, the thief, the insurrectionist, what did he know? What did he confess? He knew that he was a sinner and was being punished justly for his crimes. He knew that Jesus was innocent and was called the Christ, the anointed one of God. There is no advanced theological knowledge here. There is no recounting of the genealogies of Israel. There is no repeating of messianic promises in the scriptures. There is only Dismas and Jesus. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. 
O Lord Jesus Christ, in your agony, you showed compassion to a man who recognized his sinfulness and your holiness. You gave him yourself, Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life. We thank you for that same indescribable gift you give to us. Help us to show such compassion to the lost so that they too may dwell in paradise with you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. The third word, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. The third word, I think, can be a bit of a challenge for us to grasp. Because at face value, it does not appear to be a theological word or a salvific word. Instead, it's practical, but it's also very loving. Arthur Pink calls this word the word of affection, and I think he calls it that rightly because in this word, while nailed to a cross, while dying in agony, while paying the ransom for the sins of mankind, the Son of Man concerns himself with the material care of his mother. And I think this is what makes the third word so challenging for us to grasp. Because in the West, we, we attempt to seize upon this word to turn it into the perfect Mother's Day sermon. Because, frankly, why wouldn't we want to emphasize the love that Jesus has for his mother while we set aside a specific day to honor our own mothers? But I think it's in this very attempt that we miss the point of this word from Christ entirely. Absolutely, he is showing love and affection for his mother. But even more importantly, the Lord Jesus, while being the atoning sacrifice for sins, continues to be obedient in his obedience to the law of Moses and to the commands of God. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, we read in the Ten Commandments, Honor your father and your mother. And by his crucifixion, the son honors the father on the cross, while at the same time he sees to the honor of his mother by looking to her continued care after his departure. And I think in this word, we can see this in two very specific ways. First, we see him addressing her as woman. In John's gospel, Mary is only mentioned twice. And both times, Jesus addresses her as woman. Not as mom, not as mother, but woman. And our initial reaction to this word and to this way he addresses her is to treat it as a demeaning term or a disrespectful term. In an age when gender is confused and simply addressing someone by their gender is 
tantamount to a hate crime, if not blasphemous against the cultural religion of the age. The Lord Jesus honors his mother by addressing her not in a disrespectful way, but instead with a term of dignity and affection, because he addresses her as God created her, and as God had chosen her as an instrument to make his glory known. See, in in this culture, a woman was always addressed in relation to the man who had authority over her in her life, so her father or her husband, or her son. And her father had lovingly surrendered his authority when he betrothed her to Joseph. And Joseph, upon his death many years prior to this occasion, the responsibility of caring for Mary fell to the eldest son, Jesus. So, by addressing her as woman, Jesus not only addresses her in a dignified way, but even more so, he clearly indicates that his time of caring for her material needs was at an end. And before yielding up his spirit, and before drinking the dregs of the cup that he was sent to bear, the Lord Jesus lovingly and obediently fulfills his duty by continuing to fulfill the law, and he honors his mother by seeing to her care. But then a question still remains, who is going to care for her? And so when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So this brings us to the second way in which the Lord Jesus fulfills the commandment to honor his father and his mother. He does it by intentionally designating John the Beloved as the one who would see to Mary's material care after his departure. But then this begs another question from us. Why did he place Mary in the care of a disciple and not an immediate family member? Because scripture tells us that Jesus had four flesh and blood half-brothers. So why not allow one of them to take up the responsibility? It was their responsibility. Well, first, he, d- he does it because it was Jesus' responsibility to care for Mary. Not James or Joseph or Simon or Judas. It was Jesus' responsibility and Jesus' alone. But this reminds us of an even further and, frankly, a more heartbreaking reality. Everyone else in his life had forsaken him in this particular moment. All except his mother, one of his aunts. Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and John, the beloved. His siblings had not believed in him as the Christ yet. But his disciples, those who had seen the signs and who had believed in him, they had scattered because of fear, all except John. Arthur Pink, again, he writes here and he says that being forsaken by his disciples was the bitterest dreg of the cup that he had to drink. And they forsook him because they were offended by him. But John returned. And instead of rebuking him for returning, the Lord Jesus instead turns to this beloved disciple and places in his care a most precious responsibility, seeing to the needs of his mother. And in doing so, Jesus provides Mary with a new son, 
And for John, Jesus provides not only a mother to honor, but a deeper dimension in his discipleship. And in doing so, Christ further extends his obedience to the law. And so while this third word is definitely an act of love, it can ultimately be understood as an act of obedience. And although it may not be wrong to try to co-opt this passage as a thinly veiled Mother's Day sermon passage, Jesus' concern over the future care of Mary is a reminder that the commandment of God to honor our parents has not been repealed. And the care that Jesus shows for his mother is an obedient response to the law in order to honor the father for the honor of his mother. Paul reminds Timothy that to neglect the care of one's family is worse than being an unbeliever. And so while we rightly give praise for his work of making propitiation for our sins while hanging on the cross, in this one simple act, the Lord Jesus shows us one of the greatest wonders of the God-man. In the midst of a divine transaction, with the very weight of the sins of the world weighing down on his already broken and beaten body, Jesus shows his tenderness. Chrysostom notes that by this one act, Jesus teaches us that we are to be obedient to care for our parents, even to the point of our very last breath. Now, seeing to the care of his mother in his dying hour was characteristic of all of his conduct throughout life. Christ was in the midst of the mightiest work of all of history, but he does not forget to make arrangements for the care of his mother. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 tells us that his name would be called Wonderful, and indeed he was and is wonderful. Wonderful in his person, wonderful in his work and in his life, and wonderful in his death. And so as we ponder these seven words tonight, let us wonder at him and let us adore him. Let us pray. O oh, blessed Savior, who in your hours of greatest suffering expressed compassion for your mother and made arrangements for her care, grant that we who seek to follow your example may show our concern for the needs of others, reaching out to provide for those who suffer in our human family. Hear this, our prayer, for your mercy's sake. Amen.
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? 
And all this Job did not sin with his lips. John Chrysostom wrote of this passage, What are you saying, woman? For if it is God who has caused these bad things, he needs to be invoked, not blasphemed. So Job did not blaspheme God. He invoked his rightness. And here tonight we hear that Jesus too, upon the cross, did not curse the Father, but instead invoked his name as if to draw him near. We know from Psalm 5, God hates sin, and we are all beset with sin. But we also know from John 3.16, God loves people. How does he reconcile these things? God the Son becomes a person himself, lives perfectly by the Holy Spirit before the Father, but takes the penalty of sin anyway, takes the judgment of sin upon himself. How can this be? He will be called wonderful, as has already been noted. So a body is prepared for the Christ, and he takes that body to the cross. It is his mission, suffering appointed to him before the foundations of the world in complete agreement among the Godhead. He not only takes sin upon himself, we know from 2 Corinthians 5, he becomes sin itself. Like the serpent upon a pole, he is lifted up before God for judgment. O Lord, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. What that moment meant for you and me, we understand clearly. What it meant for him, we cannot say. He was made our perfect high priest through suffering, everything from a newborn's hunger pangs to a young man's violent death, the penalty of sin, even though he was sinless. Somehow he too suffered our separation from God. How can this be? Mystery raged in the heavenlies as Jesus of Nazareth battled the twisted evil of the fall. And he did so by hanging nailed to a wooden cross. Job said, thus have I been forsaken by all. Yet in the midst of the full force of the wrath of the Father, still Christ did not sin with his lips. We can declare with the prophet Nahum, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Thanks be to God, the Christ can and did. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. In the midst of it, he invoked the name of the beloved Father, not for his place, even in the midst of suffering, but while taking my place, not for his own sake, but for yours and mine. Hebrews 6 gives us an idea of what it means to be God-forsaken. For land that has drunk the rain and often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God 
But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is a fitting description of Jesus, who was fruitful before God more than anyone who's ever stepped upon the earth, but made himself the curse of the worthless, not by compulsion nor by nature, but by choice. The curse of sin fell upon him worse than anyone before or after. And though he did die, still he did not curse God. Before time began, a body was prepared for him. This is how the Septuagint puts it. In the Hebrew text of Psalm 40, verse 6, it reads, You have dug an ear for me. This phrase, too, hints at incarnation, but also to the law concerning a slave. Philippians tells us Jesus came taking the form of a servant. When a servant desired to stay with his master permanently, to draw near to him, a nail was driven through the ear of the slave and into a wooden doorpost. It is a bloody, painful commitment one that reveals the willingness to suffer for a lifelong bond between servant and Lord. At this point, the slave invokes the name of his master, takes it to himself, and clings to it. I am his. So, all the sin of all time throughout all creation fell upon the Christ. Psalm 89 reads, But now you have cast off and rejected you are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Still, the son cried out in desperation to his father. Chrysostom says, with this last breath, Jesus declares, still you are my God. His voice did not speak a curse but entreated the presence of God, the cooling comforts of eternal, holy oneness. At the point where he seemed without hope, his only thought was his desire for the Father. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. O oh, blessed Lord Jesus, you bitterly suffered alone on the cross and experienced the anguish of separation. Come and be with us in times of despair and loneliness and transform our sadness into fellowship with you. We pray also for our sisters and brothers throughout the world who experience alienation, oppression, and aloneness. Comfort and support them with your presence and bring them to a place of rest in you. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.
the fifth word, I thirst. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. John 19, 28 through 29. I thirst. When hearing him say, I thirst, this past week, I couldn't help but wonder, what does it mean that the water of life should thirst? Early in the book of John, we witness Christ engaging with the Samaritan, a half-breed of all people, and a woman nonetheless, telling her to give me a drink. Christ gradually reveals himself as the keeper of water that will quench all thirst in this conversation, a water that brings eternal life. The woman has to work to quench her thirst. She even has to work at odd times to avoid shame because of her sins. Now Christ, who is on the cross, naked for all to see, with flesh flayed and pierced, says, I thirst. Yet he only says this when he knows that he has fulfilled his Father's will for him. So he knowingly says, I thirst, to fulfill the prophecy of the psalmist who said, For my thirst they give me sour wine to drink. We can basically equate this sour wine to a bitter vinegar. It might quench some thirst, but it is revolting to the tongue. Might it be that Christ, taking a sip of this bitter liquid, is an acknowledgement that he is taking on our bitter sins, as revolting as they are? Is he drinking in the woman's shame and sinfulness so that he might give her the water of life? The way in which he received the sour wine is just as interesting. They put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch. During the very first Passover, we see the people of Israel as slaves in Egypt, taking a pure and spotless lamb into their homes for a time. On an appointed night, they were to sacrifice the lamb and sprinkled its blood on the doorsteps and lintels of their homes with a hyssop branch so that their households might avoid death. John the Baptist knew as much when he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our Lamb has dwelt with us for a time. So now his appointed time of death has come. His blood may be poured out for us and may even protect us from death during this time. His thirst for now is quenched with the bitterness of taking on our sin. In this action of hyssop, blood, and death interacting, there may, by some mysterious and symbolic connection, uh, be a, a connection between blood and hyssop, and be between cleansing from death uh, and disease. The psalmist knew this well uh, when he realize the pain of his sin, how it leads to disease, and gnaws away at healthy flesh, and results in death. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. As one who is familiar with the rites of the Levitical priests, he would know that hyssop and blood was present when someone came in contact with a dead body, or was to be pronounced clean from leprosy. Likewise, might it also be that the blood of lamb of God who is hanging on the cross, saying, I thirst, is thirsting for our cleansing, despite him, despite him taking on filth, is thirsting for our life, as he is drinking of death, and is thirsting for God's will to be done, and his glorification as he succumbs to our brutality 
that he chose to take upon himself? Could we even take this a step further and say that Christ is our hyssop branch? Just as a hyssop branch becomes stained with blood to cleanse and purify, has Christ just uh, become stained with our sin to purify us? The psalmist's son, in his abundant wisdom, noted that the hyssop uh, grows out of the wall. In a place where life cannot survive, where there is no hope, hyssop, a plant identified with cleansing, can grow. So as, we, uh, so as we are at the foot of the cross, listening to our Lord, our Lamb, say, I thirst, is there hope in the face of this certain and bitter death caused by sin? Might our hope be that our Savior has taken on our sin and borne the bitter pain of death, that we might drink of an eternal life that only He can give? O most blessed Jesus, you thirsted and experienced pain for us. Kindle in our hearts a thirst for you, that we may love and serve you, and lead others to find their rest in you. Remember, O Lord, all the sick and dying, and deliver them from pain, granting them a glorious ending through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. Amen. The sixth word, it is finished. What is finished exactly? It is finished. I don't know about you, but when I think of something being finished, I think of a project that I'm working on or something that uh, I, you know, have been partaking in that's taken me way too long. And then I finally get to the end, I'm excited that it's finished. What is Jesus referring to when he says, it is finished? Scripture doesn't give a lot of exposition on its own here. So the Greek word, the word in Greek was, uh, is tetelestai. It was used in a number of contexts, from finishing a project or to finally getting a debt paid off. That would be an example of tetelestai, or finished, or complete. So is Jesus just referring to his life, his 33 years on this earth, coming to an end? Don't get me wrong, that would be significant, but it's hard to believe that was the extent of things. And given the passage involves the death of Jesus very son of God such an utterance would be such an utterance of him come his earthly life coming to an end would be completely self-evident so as I looked at this I began to ponder over what all was now finished with the death of our Lord 
Sometimes the cross that Jesus hung on is referred to as a tree. Certainly before he hung on a tree, he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. In fact, uh, a tree is quite appropriate for this service because we have seven candles. Seven candles in a stand in Jewish culture is called a menorah, which, which is actually a figure of a tree. That's what a menorah is. It represents a tree. You could think of this as the branches of a tree, the branches out, the fire, the leaves on that tree. And then when late fall comes, the leaves begin to fall off and they fall and more fall off and more fall off until they all fall off. And then the tree is effectively dead for the winter. In the sense, we do that with this as well, blowing these candles out, symbolizing the end of the work being finished, the death of Christ. In fact, the tree, this tree has appeared before, just as, in the, just as the garden of Gethsemane, or a garden, has appeared before. For the first man, Adam also prayed in a garden. He was so close to God that he walked with him in the garden. I think Nick spoke with this earlier, and spoke with him. In the garden was the tree he wrongly partook of, but there was also the other tree, and it was called the tree of life. Augustine writes that figuratively, Figuratively, the tree of life is the cross, in a sense. Or rather, the cross with Christ on it. For out of the side flows blood and water. On it hangs fruit and its leaves for the healing of the nations. In the first garden, the man partook of the wrong tree, despite his communion with God. And as a result, all things were changed. The world forever cursed, and man and women themselves cursed. For the woman was cursed with the pain of childbirth. For the man... It says, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and by and you shall eat the herb of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So man must now eat bread, and it would not come easily. Only a single generation later, man once again engages in horrible sin, for the one son of Adam and Eve kills the other. The curse continues, and as it, is, excuse me, as it says, So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. Again, man must eat bread, and that bread would not come easily. Must till the soil, the soil would not give up its yield easily, and the bread would be made. Sin continued, as did punishment. God had to destroy the world by water. Nonetheless, people were still no better afterwards. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. How many times did the Israelites rebel against God, refusing to simply obey his instructions and rely upon him as told? We do not have time to cover all such times in human history, that the people of God rebelled both individually and corporately. It happened over and over and over again, and continues to happen to this day. But, praise be to God, there is the second Adam. 
who is actually not created like the other Adam, but pre-existed us, pre-existed us all, pre-incarnate and loved by God before the very foundation of the world. And he is not the bread of life toiled for out of the earth, but the bread of life from heaven given to us. Man was cursed to live on bread, but now the bread of life was given, declared not as from the toil of the earth, but rather as that which comes down from heaven. He was in the beginning with God and was God. Being made flesh, this Adam too found himself in a garden. And once again, the tree of life was an option there to be embraced. To partake of that tree meant to willingly die for everything or to everything in this world. It meant to take care of the garden by pouring out one's own body and blood on that tree. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He hung on the tree of life in one sense, like the snake on the pole and another, like the fruit dripping as the tree described in Revelation. What we have to understand is that when Jesus utters, it is finished on the cross. It is not the first time this is declared in the word. All the way back in Genesis, God spends the six days creating, finishing with man created in his own image. When he is done, what does the text say? Chapter 1 in Genesis ends with the first verse of chapter 2 saying, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And it was all good, you see. And being finished with the work, there was Sabbath. But then throughout chapter 2, in the context of that garden comes the fall. Then Jesus setting the garden right again. With his work, going to the cross, beginning in the garden of Gethsemane placing himself in atonement for the sin of Adam, and thus all of us, by becoming the tree of life, Jesus rightfully fulfilled that statement. It is finished. And with that is the eternal Sabbath. O Lord Jesus Christ, who finished the work that you were sent to do, enable us by your Holy Spirit to be faithful to our call, Grant us strength to bear our crosses and endure our sufferings, even unto death, and enable us to live and love so faithfully that we also become good news to the world, joining your witness. O Christ, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. the seventh word. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Before we start, I would like to uh, draw your attention to how every time the flame is extinguished, the smoke slowly rises up. It will matter soon. So, here we are at the beginning. Uh, 
Let's build off of what we just heard. The cross is the moment of new creation. The cosmos is now suddenly different, brand new. We'll invoke Genesis one more time here. This is the moment of new creation. To say the same thing another way. Um, as the veil is torn, and the veil is torn right before this last word, the priesthood of the believer begins again. And to say the same thing yet another way, because Jesus promised not to drink wine until the kingdom arrived, and then he drinks wine at the cross, we know that the kingdom begins here. So here we are at the beginning. New creation, new priesthood, new kingdom. This is, this is day eight. This is Sabbath. Six hours dying. And then Sabbath rest. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the first and foremost new creation prayer. Now, why would that be? Why would this be the first one? It could have been a prayer of intercession. It could have been a prayer of thankfulness. It could have been um, another declaration of victory, like it is finished. Why is this the first and foremost new creation prayer? And the answer lies in liturgy. Because... Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is Psalm 31.5. And Psalm 31.5 is the daily Jewish evening prayer. Not just the evening prayer. Remember, the day starts in the evening. This is also the beginning of the prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the Shema that is being prayed on the cross. And every Jew would have known it as the Shema. They would have recognized this. It was even customary in rabbinical tradition and allowed for if, for whatever reason, and this certainly qualifies, that you couldn't recite the entire paragraph. It was built into Jewish custom to use this verse as a shorthand. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with that one verse, Jesus is fulfilling the Shema, the Jewish code, Completing the day and beginning the new. So, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He would have, he would have prayed this every, every evening since he could talk. It would have been built into his psyche. It would have been um, involuntary muscle memory. Um, he would have just said it. It was, it's a matter of the heart in that moment. And I have seen that involuntary sort of prayer twice um, that I can recall. My grandfather, after Alzheimer's had claimed his uh, ability to talk, I, I still watched him pray. He still knew how to pray. It was, prayer was deeper into his psyche than words were. Um, and more recently, um, a week after my son was born, as I was rocking him to sleep, I uh, just on a whim uh, saying, 
Psalm 134, and that became a habit now for as long as Liam has been with us. He has heard Psalm 134 consistently as he goes to sleep. And uh, I can tell you that before he could say all of his letters and, and string a full sentence together, he could sing Psalm 134. It was, it's, a, it's a part of his nature now. It's, it's, he never had to memorize it. It was part of him. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what liturgy does. It's about the heart. And that's what new creation is about. It's about the heart. It, that has always been what it's about. It's been God dwelling in relationship, heart to heart, with his people. Yahweh dwelling with his church, they being his people, he being their God. So, what we have here at the beginning is Christ leading us by example in prayer, in liturgical prayer at that, giving the church uh, this, uh, this, this wedding gift, uh, an example of liturgical prayer for his brand new bride and uh, for for 2,000 years, we have been echoing that prayer. Uh, day after day, week after week, century after century, one by one, echoing Jesus' prayer as we uh, finally commit ourselves back to God. O most blessed Savior, you gave up your precious life to atone for our sin and conquer the powers of evil. Grant us the power to live in your name. Confirm our faith, deepen our repentance, and strengthen us with your body and blood. And may we come to that heavenly rest like incense, may we come to that heavenly rest where you dwell forever with your Father in the fellowship of the Spirit. Amen.
who and all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place. They beat their breasts and they went away. This concludes our service. Please depart in peace.